all over to the country. So, Father, we thank you that we're here in uh, this book, the book of Revelation. And I pray that as we um, finish this chapter, that once again our hearts would be touched with what is said here. And we know the five most important words are the revelation of Jesus Christ, him being unveiled, revealed to us to a greater degree, your glory, your majesty, um, Lord, your power, and your promise. Your promise that you're going to come and establish your kingdom. So, Lord, I pray that we would understand this, that Jesus in the, is in the midst of the church. He's here in this place. And you have something to say to us tonight. So I pray that we would be attentive to the things that you want to show us in Jesus' name. Amen. So John, the last of the original apostles on the scene, it's the end of the first century as we've gone over, and he is the elder statesman of the church. And the church at this time is under great persecution, as we've discussed, that it went under persecution under Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero would torture the Christians. He burnt the city of Rome down. He blamed the Christians. He would feed them the wild animals. He would burn them at the stake. And when Nero would eventually have Paul and Peter and the Christians, many of them, thousands of them, were put to death by Caesar Nero, that it would be Vespasian that would come and he would then be the emperor of Rome. And the persecution lightened up on the Christians at that time, but he had a son named Titus who was a Roman general that took the Roman armies and they surrounded Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, they would destroy Jerusalem. They tore apart the, the first, second temple, that is Herod's temple is what it was called, a magnificent building. And uh, they would carry away into captivity 100,000 Jews into slavery. Uh, the nation ceased as a nation. They were then out of the land for 2,000 years. But we know that after that time, that it would be Titus that would become the emperor. He would rule for a couple years, and then it would be Domitian, his brother that came on the throne. And Domitian, in 81 AD, as he came to be the new emperor of Rome, he hated the Christians. He hated them. And anyone who stood before Domitian, the history tells us, that they would uh, make them say to Caesar, you are Lord, that you are God. And if they didn't, they would, would be put to death. And we know that it was usually the Jews and the Christians that said, no, we're not going to say that to Domitian. And so Domitian killed thousands upon thousands of Christians. And he would hear about John. He's the elder statesman of the church. He's the last of the original apostles. Paul and, and Peter had been put to death some 30 years before this time. And John, he's an elderly man. He's an elder there at Ephesus. History tells us that John would leave right before Jerusalem was destroyed in about 68, 69 AD and went to Ephesus. And as he's an elder there, Domitian gets word that there's John, the last of these original apostles. And if I put him to death, then this thing called Christianity is going to die. And, of course, we talked about how church tradition tells us that there in the amphitheater that they put John into a pot of boiling oil. And as it wasn't hurting him, he would raise his arms and begin to praise God. And Domitian cried out, get him out of here. So they would banish him to the rocky island of Patmos. And there is John as he's isolated 
And he's there, um, as we know and have discussed. And I think that John would think back as it was Domitian that thought, if I can get rid of John, this thing, Christianity, is going to go away, that we know that he, John, was there many years, some 60 years before this time, that he was at Caesarea Philippi, and he would hear Jesus say that the gates of hell would not prevail against this church. So John, as we finish in verse 9, let me read it to you, that I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on an island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so there he is on that island, about 25 miles off the coast of Turkey. It was a prison island. It was an island that if you went there, you did not come back. And John is in his 80s, and he is an elderly man. We are told that he was put to work. He's cold. He's isolated. And then as we continue on, as he says, I'm your brother and companion in tribulation there on the island of Patmos. And I want to remind you that he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you and I, as we ended last week, and I want to remind us at this time in our study, that as you believe the word of God and you have the testimony of Jesus Christ that is in your heart and being expressed in your life, you will find yourself at times on that island. You will find yourself being isolated. You will find yourselves going through rocky, barren times. And all of a sudden, John, as he does, verse 10, it tells us that I was in the spirit in the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And, I, and saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, and the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John, on that island, on this, you know, uh, in the spirit on the Lord's day, and, and what does that mean? And, and as I think about this, here is John uh, as he's on that island. It's on the Lord's day. It could be that it means that, first of all, um, some believe that it's talking about the first day of the week. It's Sunday. And we know that it was the first day of the week when Christians gathered in the early church. And the Christians met on the first day of the week because it was the day that the Lord rose from the grave. So they would meet to worship. They would study the scriptures. They would take communion. They would eat together. And, and there are those who will come along and say to you and to me, well, the church didn't meet on Sunday. That was all a conspiracy, you know. It came later when Constantine in 313 or whenever declared Christianity the, the religion of Rome. And that's when the Christians started meeting on Sunday. I see in the scriptures where they did meet on Sunday. We can read the book of Acts and we see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. So it was customarily they would come together. Paul is there with them. You read there in Acts chapter 20 that Paul spoke to them and he would teach until midnight. So I thought I'd try that. Maybe I can teach till midnight or whatever. But you think I have long teachings. Paul, he spoke until the sun came up the next day. But you remember the story that it was Eutychus. He's sitting in the window and he got sleepy as Paul is teaching, and he fell asleep, and he fell over three, out of the window three stories down on the ground, dead. Paul goes down. 
he resurrects them, and then they go up and he continues his teaching. So <laughs> it's amazing. I think there's a lesson in that, you know, what can happen if you fall asleep while the teaching's going on? <laughs> he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. No, I know it's hard, you know, especially Wednesday nights when, you know, you guys have been working hard and, and all of you and, and it can be hard. And, you know, if you do not off, you can just say that I was resting in the Lord. But um, we see that with Eutychus and, and they met on the first day of the week. We see in First Corinthians chapter 16 that Paul says, listen. I'm taking a collection to take to Jerusalem, and I'm going to come, and then on the first day of the week, I'll come and get that collection. Why was he saying that? Because that's when everybody was coming to church, and that's when they were together. So I think there's ample evidence that it was the Christians that were meeting on the first day of the week. And we know, I think, they were doing it from uh, the very beginning, because in Acts chapter 2, Verse 42 is the you know, earliest days of the church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. And then they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They were meeting every day. From house to house. And that's why it's important for us to understand that Paul comes along in Romans chapter 14 and he says, listen, one man esteems one day above another. One man esteems every day alike. You be convinced in your own heart and in your own mind. And I'm one that I have the conviction that every day is a day where the church can gather together, whether that's Sunday morning as we traditionally do, Wednesday night or Monday night or Tuesday night. Every night of the week, there are Christians that are here meeting, small groups, you know, lady studies, men's studies, and different times that we gather. And I think it's wonderful that we're able to do that. So it could be that, as he says, it was on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, or uh, it could be that, as he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that it was like John was taken into a time capsule to see all these future prophetic events that would unfold as God is revealing supernaturally the context of this book. And, and I don't want us to miss, as he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet. Obviously, it's the Lord that's speaking to him. And I think about for the very first time in over 60 years, he hears the voice of the Lord. He hears the voice of the Lord. John was one that watched all his fellow apostles be martyred. He would hear about it. Fellow Christians that were being put to death and he hears the voice of the Lord and what a comfort it must have been. And I know for you and for me in those isolated times, you know, in those times where it seems like, Lord, it, you've been silent to me, that he desires to speak to you. When you find yourself in the rocky, barren situation of your life. And it can seem like, Lord, I need to hear your voice. He desires to speak to you, to come to you, to comfort you, and to minister to you. And what a comfort it must have been as John, he, he hears the Lord's voice as of a trumpet as we read. And, and we know that as he says that I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And verse 8, the beginning of the end, of course, speaking of Jesus' eternal state, all the way existed from eternity past. He will always exist in the eternity future. But we see that Jesus, that he addresses here 
these uh, seven churches that are listed, he says that you are to write in a book and send it to the seven churches. These are seven literal churches in Asia Minor that existed in the first century. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say to them when we get to chapters 2 and 3. And the list of churches are there in verse 11. They're not the only churches that were in proconsular Asia. They weren't the only churches that were throughout the Roman Empire. But these are seven churches that Jesus is going to address. And then in verse 12, Then I heard to see the voice of that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now a couple of things here. In this verse, the lampstand reminds us of, and a lot of people, they read this, of the golden lampstands that were in the holy place in the tabernacle. You know that uh, in the tabernacle, that as you came into the tabernacle, into the outer courtyard, if you were of any of the 12 tribes of Israel, you could come there. You could bring your sacrifice. There was a brazen altar, a brass altar that was there where they did the sacrifices in the outer courtyard. And then there was the laver where the priest would do washing. And then there was the tabernacle itself. It had two rooms. You would walk through the door of the tabernacle, and as you walked through the door, on the right-hand side was the showbread table with 12 loaves of bread uh, that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and then on the straight ahead was the altar of incense that they would come. It was right before the veil. And they would burn incense to the Lord that represented the prayers of the people. Then on the left-hand side was a seven-branch menorah, right? And those seven branches had bowls and oils that floated around um, that were filled in the bowls. And then wicks that floated around. And that was the source of light there in the tabernacle. The the priests would make sure they'd fill up those bowls full of oil. So that was the holy place. And then, of course, behind the veil was the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat on top of it. And that's where only the high priest was allowed to go through that veil once a day in the Day of Atonement. So we think of that seven-branch menorah that, that speaks of that Israel was to be a light to the world, but it speaks of Jesus too, right? That he's the light of the world, just as the showbread table, that it speaks that he is the bread of life. It's, it's not speaking of that lampstand. Here, these are individual lampstands um, that are, are being mentioned as Jesus talks about these seven churches. He likes them to a, a lampstand. And you and I, you recall that Jesus said, don't put your lampstand under a bed, but let it shine. And I pray that this church, Calvary Chapel, that truly that we would be a light to this community, that we would be a light in the darkness, that we would let our light shine with the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word and the love of Jesus Christ to others. So here he's talking about these seven churches, and we know that um, as we continue in chapter 1, we're going to see that Jesus standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. Verse 20 tells us these are the seven churches. Jesus standing in the midst of the church, in the midst of his people, will turn to each one of those lampstands, as I said, and he'll dress them. He'll dress the church of Ephesus. He'll address the church of, you know, Smyrna. He'll address the church of Pergamos. When we go through chapters 2 and 3, I think it's some of the richest chapters that we can study in the whole book of Revelation. It's so important. 
And what Jesus will do is he will communicate. He's going to trumpet. Here John is, is hearing the voice of a trumpet to each one of those seven churches. And again, uh, as we look at that, it's going to be very, very powerful. And we know that, uh, that the trumpet would trumpet as you read the Old Testament messages. The first time that we see a trumpet sound uh, and mentioned in Scripture is in the book of Exodus chapter 19. And it was bring the, the people to the mountain of God. When you go to Numbers chapter 10, you recall that there were five basic messages that were given by these two silver trumpets that God told Moses, listen, you build these two silver trumpets and they were messages that were blown. Like when they blew both trumpets, it was to assemble the congregation at the door of the tabernacle. When one trumpet was blown, it was sound uh, to call the leaders together. Um, when a certain sound went out, there was a sound of uh, the advancement, that is to direct the marching orders of the people. There was another time the trumpets were used uh, as a message to send the, you know, and sound the alarm, calling the people into battle. And, and then there was also the trumpet calls. You read Numbers chapter 10, a fifth message. Uh, the trumpets were blown over the sacrifices in order to celebrate worship. Now you might be thinking, so what? What does this have to do with me? You know, these lampstands and, and, you know, the, the trumpet messages of the book of Numbers and, and these messages. Stay with me. Because I want to remind us that the Lord is the one that stands in the midst of his people. And as I've already mentioned, he's called us to be lights in a dark place. And the Lord desires to trumpet to us, to communicate to us, to proclaim to us, number one, that he wants us to assemble. And what my hope and prayer is that we would never forget that the church is important. It's, the church is important to Jesus. Where are you going to find Jesus? You find him here in Revelation chapter 1, standing in the midst of the churches. The church is the foundation, you know, or Jesus is the foundation of the church. He's the cornerstone of the church. He stands in the midst of the church. And he desires for us to gather together, even as Hebrews chapter 10 says, don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together, as is the matter of son, especially as you see the day approaching. And we are seeing the day approaching. And I hope that being together, I know we won't be here every Sunday. We won't be here every Wednesday. But for you and for your family, that you would make priority that we're going to be with God's people. Because I see more and more that that's not a priority with a lot of Christians. And how many people do I talk to that they call me, you know, up or they email me and, and, and I'm glad they do. And I get to talk with them. And as I converse with them, I'll ask them, are you in a church or are you with other believers? No, we thought about it. Or we see people that disappear for months after months after months because of all the activities and the things that go on. Listen, we all have things in life that we enjoy doing, but I pray that we would never say that church is not important to me and to my family. And the commandment is given not to forsake ourselves, the assembly of ourselves together. Second of all, he trumpets to you and to me. That he's calling you into positions of service. He's calling you as they would sound the trumpet to call the leaders together. He's calling you dads to lead your homes. 
and to be the priest of your homes. He's calling you to lead, you at work, to to be able to be that spiritual leader in that workplace. You may be the only Christian that's there. But I'll tell you what, that as you represent the Lord, he's going to use you at some time in some way to be able to be a voice of truth to others and to be able to to bring, you know, some, some real answers to them as they go through life and they are troubled as they go through difficulties, as they're confused, you have truth to give to them. He's calling you to use you, and he desires to use you with your family and at the workplace and here, and and he wants us to be used in that way. We have been saved to serve, and wherever you're at, to pray for people, And I know that there are things that come up in life. Maybe you're taking care of your elderly parents. Maybe you're busy raising those rascals in the ways of the Lord. But God is using you in that. Wherever he has you, opportunities he gives to you. And he desires to use you. To use you and wherever he has you and the gifts he wants to give to you. And I'll tell you what, what a joy it is to serve the Lord, to serve your family. Husbands, serve your wives. And as you do, there's going to be a great joy in your life. And not only does the Lord want to to fellowship with us and he wants to minister through us, but thirdly, he wants to give direction to us. You see, as we track through this wilderness, the Lord says, I want to give you my marching orders, to give you direction every single day. And I want to remind you again, read your Bible every day. Read your Bible. Have devotions. Be going to the Lord. Be sensitive to the leading of the Lord. It's so wonderful. Walking in the Spirit, as we talked about on Sunday, and and continue uh, to do that on this Sunday in Romans chapter 8. And sometimes we doubt, Lord, do you want to direct me? Do you want to guide me? Well, as parents, we guide our children, don't we? We guide them every opportunity that we get. And it's a heavenly father who loves you so much he desires to guide you and direct you. And he says to you and to me, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all of your ways acknowledge him and what's the promise? He will direct your paths in every area of your life. And that's what God trumpets to us. That I want to give you direction. And then fourthly, just as in Numbers chapter 10, they would blow the trumpets for battle. Well, we know that we are told that the enemy is going to do battle with us. This is not a playground. This is a battleground, isn't it? And I believe that as we get closer to the return of the Lord, the enemy is going to come against us with everything that he has. He's going to come against our kids. He's going to come against this church because he knows his time is short. And I think the warfare is, is going to get stronger. And as I was reading Nehemiah chapter 4, you know, the other day, I was reminded as Nehemiah is there encouraging the people, the rubble is, was, you know, all over the place. The enemies were coming and discouraging them. And Nehemiah says, fight. Listen, fight for your spouse. Fight for your family. Fight for your brethren. For the Lord is great and awesome. And I want to encourage you, you fight and you put on the whole armor of God. Don't just lay down. But it is a battle out there. 
And he's going to keep coming at us, especially if you're growing in the Lord and you're growing in the word of God. If he's stirring you for service, as you're raising your children in the ways of the Lord, the enemy is going to come against you. And the alarm is sounded. So put on the whole armor of God. Don't start your day without it. Because the enemy's out to get you, to destroy you, to deceive you, to pull you down, to wipe you out. Satan will attack you. So remember this, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And not only does he want to have fellowship with you and use you and direct you and save you, but fifthly, as I read from Numbers chapter 10, that he wants to work worship within you. They would blow the trumpets over the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. They are sacrifices of worship, expression of commitment and dedication and love. And the Lord is calling us to worship him. We exist to bring him pleasure. And you might be here thinking, well, that's fine, those messages, how the Lord wants to us to assemble and he wants to guide me and he wants to use me and and he wants to strengthen me in the warfare that I'm in and he wants me to come and worship him but I have blown it and I'm not what I could be and I'm not what I should be and maybe he's trumpeting that to somebody else but not to me one more comment about Numbers chapter 10. Those trumpets I mentioned to you were made of silver. They weren't made of gold. Gold is the metal of perfection, uh, divinity. He's not trumpeting to you and to me perfection required or divine character required. Those trumpets were not made of brass. Brass speaks of judgment. There are those Christians, as I said on Sunday, that they go through their whole lives feeling condemned. And to remind you again, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation is condemned for eternal judgment. There is no condemnation. Jesus took the condemnation and the judgment for you on that cross. He dealt with it. He took it upon himself and cried out, it is finished. So it's not judgment, it is silver trumpets. And silver is the medal of redemption. You have been redeemed by the Lord. And if you are in Christ, he's trumpeting those messages to you. And here is John, he hears the trumpet sound and, and the voice of the Lord. And in verse 13, we continue reading, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the feet, and girded with a chest with a golden band. His hair and his uh, head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And verse 16 tells us he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength so John heard it, hearing the voice of the Lord he turned to see the Lord standing in the midst of the golden lampstands the seven churches as I've already mentioned in proconsular Asia again these are real churches that we're going to be looking at one like the son of man it's, that's the title of Jesus. As you go through the Gospels, particularly in Luke's Gospel, he is referred to as the Son of Man. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And it's a reference. You can write down Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And there he is in the midst of the church. And he has a message for them. And then this description of Jesus. Now, there's no description of Jesus when he came the first time. There's a few hints, isn't there? We know that Jesus had a beard. 
Why do we know that? Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Remember that it was prophesied that they plucked out the beard? They plucked out his beard. When the Roman soldiers would pound that crown of thorns around his head and, and they flogged him with that cat of nine tails, they pulled out his beard, is what Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2 tells us that there was no splendor, no beauty about his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, he was an average-looking Jewish man. He, he didn't have a halo over him. You know, he wasn't glowing in the dark. The only time he was glowing is at the Mount of Transfiguration. But, you know, he wasn't a Robert Redford kind of looking guy, any of those things. So there's no splendor that we should desire him. John chapter 8 tells us that the religious leader said to him, but you're not but 50 years old. Jesus was in his early 30s. So he may have looked older than he was. And, and that's the only description. We do know that Nicodemus in John's gospel tells us Nicodemus would bring 100 pounds of, of or 200 pounds of burial spices. And um, excuse me, it was 100 pounds of burial spices that you read in John's gospel. And they would apply one pound of burial spice for about two pounds of body weight is what the ancient records show us. So Jesus may have weighed anywhere from 175, 180, maybe as high as 200 pounds, but that's it. And you have people that draw and they paint and make statues of Jesus and all of this. Here we see a description of Jesus. It's not a description of Jesus as the man of sorrows crowned with thorns, but it, here as the Lord of glory. And it tells us here that his clothed uh, with garment down to his feet in the book of Exodus chapter 28, the robe of the high priest, and of course Jesus, we are told, is our great high priest. The robe of the high priest was designed for glory and beauty. And his robe, his garment to his feet symbolizes one of great dignity and authority. It also symbolizes the clothing of a priest and judge. Around his chest was a golden band that also hints to the garments of the high priest. Again, Exodus chapter 29, verse 5. Verse 14, we read his head and his hair were white like wool, which has the idea of purity. His eyes like a flame of fire describing his piercing judgment of sin. We know that when we go home to be with the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 tells us to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And when we take our last breath here, we are going to be standing before our Lord. You know, you hear the jokes about Peter at the pearly gates and all that. Forget about that. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And I imagine the Lord with those eyes of flames and those eyes of love are going to be looking at you and me at that moment. It's going to be awesome. We know that we will all stand before the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ and we'll be judged what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. We're not being judged for our sins. Jesus took that judgment. But we are told that we're going to stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. Paul says that right before he tells us 
uh, be, be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, actually, I think that comes first. And then we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema reward seat of Christ. We are going to be judged for the works that we have done, not for salvation, but there are rewards to be given. There's crowns to be given for what we have done for Christ in this life. And as 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us, that all of our works are going to be judged by what? By fire. And they're going to be likened into precious metals, gold, silver, and precious metals, or wood, hay, and stubble. And I always kind of pictured when I go home to be with the you know, Lord, that all of a sudden there's going to be this big pile of my works there. And it's going to all go up and there'll be a little bit of gold and silver and precious metals. But as I read this, and as Jude says, that to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you before his presence with exceeding joy that I just picture when we go home to be with the Lord, that he will look at us with those eyes of flames and all the things that are unlike him instantly are going to burn up. And all the things that are of him are going to shine forth. And then he's going to put his arm around you and he's going to present you to the Father before his presence faultless. And I think me faultless because I am so far from that. But that's what Jesus has provided for you and for me. We've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Father and the Son, it tells us in God's word, are going to rejoice over you and what he has done. Those eyes of flames of love looking at you and for me. And then we see that his feet is fine brass. Brass speaks of judgment in the Old Testament. And, of course, he's going to come and he's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the nations. But I also know this, that Jesus, his first coming, that he took the judgment as the nail pierced his feet for you and for me. We continue looking at this. We see that his voice was like the voice of many waters, speaking of his majesty, Waterfall, you know, you've been to a waterfall. Uh, you go to, for example, to Yellowstone, the Yellowstone Waterfall, and they have a number of waterfalls that you can go to, and just the rushing water and the sound of water is deafening. And, and maybe when you hear the ocean, it's, you're at the beach or something, it's a dominating sound. And his voice was that way. And in verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. And, and just as verse 20 tells us that the seven lampstands represent these seven churches that Jesus is standing in the midst of, verse 20 also tells us that the seven stars are seven angels or messengers is what the word reads of those seven churches. Now, when we get to it, we'll talk a little bit more about it when we get to next week, the seven churches. But some Bible scholars are divided. Are they seven heavenly messengers that are appointed to these churches, actual angels. I like to think that the idea there's an angel that's appointed to watch over a church. I think if there is, that the angel that watches over this church is a good angel. He's a great angel, doing a great job. It's interesting that Paul, remember in Corinthians, he's talking about ordering the church, and he said, remember the angels. Remember the angels. And I think, what's up with that? What's going on with that verse? He's like, they're watching. Be sensitive. Or it could be, and I kind of lean towards this, Angelos, the messenger. 
that is speaking of the pastor of the church. And if that is the case, I like that as well because the seven stars are in Jesus' right hand because as a pastor, I want to be in his hand. I want to be in his hand. And I know you do as well. And Jesus promised that we would be in his hands in John chapter 10 and no one's going to be able to pluck you out. And then out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, verse 16. In Revelation chapter 19, when we see the description of Jesus' second coming, it will give um, the same description, and I believe it's a reference to the Word of God. He will simply speak, and he will destroy those who come against him. He will judge the nations. Hebrew chapter 4 tells us that the Word of God is like is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. His countenance, we read, is, is like the sun that speaks of and reminds us of the transfiguration up on the mountain there, that he was transfigured and he countenance was like the sun shining as the gospel writers you know, tell us. So this is an awesome sight that John is seeing. In verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Everything in this vision of Jesus speaks of his strength and his majesty and his glory and authority and righteousness. And John, seeing the Lord, fall at his feet as if he were dead and and you know he's overwhelmed and that's the reaction of Daniel when he saw the Lord of course when we looked at Isaiah he was overwhelmed and when he saw the vision of the Lord and he said woe is me when Paul was caught up into the third heaven in second Corinthians he was humbled he said I saw things that are unlawful for me to write about to mention unspeakable things that's why I get really kind of suspicious you know, I, I heard this one faith teacher that was on TV in a big crowd talking about he went to heaven, caught up in the heaven, and, and I've heard that. And he's going on about how he talked with Jesus, and he saw Abraham with the big chain, and went swimming in the river of life, and, and all this ridiculous stuff. I said, really? Really? Because if you really saw the Lord, you would fall as if you were dead. If you really saw, you would be like Paul, things that are unspeakable for me to mention. And so here in the presence of the glory of the Lord, John, who walked with Jesus, fell at his, his feet as if dead. The one John who leaned his chest against, you know, or his head against the chest of Jesus at the upper room. And any of us that stand in his purity and light and glory we become so aware of our frailties and how short we come. People can say, I'm righteous and I'm holy and I'm good compared to someone else. Yeah, you might look pretty good. But compared to the Lord, that's when we realize we fall short. And then we see the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus as he puts his right hand on John, and I like that. And he says to John, don't be afraid. He puts his right hand on him. The compassion of our Lord, the compassion of our Lord, as you remember that it was in Matthew's gospel that that man full of leprosy came to Jesus and said, if you're willing, cleanse me. And what does it say? That Jesus, with his hand, reached down and touched that man and immediately he was healed. I think of the compassionate hands of Jesus. Again, as I've already mentioned today, that it was the, the parents that were bringing their children to Jesus, and he says that he put his hands on them, and he blessed them. 
We know that they're the same hands that Peter, as he was walking on the water, as Jesus said, you want to walk on the water? Come out, Peter. Come out of the boat there in the storm. And it was Peter that saw the waves crashing against him. And he began to sink. And he only had time to cry out, save me, Lord. And it was the Lord with those hands that reached out and pulled Peter out of that boat and, you know, out of the water and plopped him back into the boat. Those hands of Jesus, I imagine, callous because he was a carpenter. And listen, he touches you with his hand for you who feel like you're all eaten up inside. For you, that as you pray for your kids and you present them before the Lord, he wants to bless them. For you, that you feel like you're sinking in the circumstances around you and you just feel like you're drowning in it. He's there to reach out to you. And he's there. He is there. To help you because he understands what it means to work hard for your family, guys. And to provide for them. Because they're the hands that were allowed to put a spike through those hands. And the people at this time, they were afraid. And we can be afraid at times. And he reaches out to you with his hands with compassion and mercy and provision and strength. And he says, you don't have to be afraid because I died for you on Calvary's cross. You don't need to be afraid. We need to hear that message. And I, he who lives, verse 18 says, was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he died for our sins and rose again the third day. And I am alive forever as he holds the keys of Hades and death. I remember when, when I was first a baby Christian, man, probably a couple days old. I, yeah, hey, look at the book of Revelation. And I read this and it's like, ah. You, you know, it, it kind of scared me. And, you know, I, I just had a picture of Jesus got this big, you know, keychain, you know. And he's opening the doors and he's throwing people in it. I got the keys of Hades and death and slam, you know, you go in and slam, you go in. Oh, he will judge. Those are the great white throne judgment. But I've come to realize it means more than that. It means this. He has the keys. He has the keys to Hades and death. Not to lock us up, but to free us. To set us free. To set us free. And he led captivity captive, as Ephesians tells us, saying this is as he went to paradise. And he said, this is what I've done. I've died for you guys. Now let's go. Let's go up to heaven. And now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And write these things down which you have seen and the things which are and the things that will take place after this. Underline this verse here in verse 19. Um, because the book of Revelation is the one book that, of the Bible that gives us the divine outline of the book. It is a key to understanding this book. If you don't understand this outline, you'll get all mixed up and goof up when you go through this book. John says, write these things which you have seen. That would be chapter 1 here, as he sees the resurrected Lord standing in the midst of seven lampstands. Second of all, write the things which are, that would be chapters 2 and 3, the messages to the seven churches, the church age. And then thirdly, write the things that will take place after this, the Greek word metatata. That's a very important word. That will be the things that are yet future in chapters 4 through 22. 
So chapter 4 begins with John in that heavenly scene being shown the things that must take place after this. Meditata. After what? After the church age. The present age. So the bulk of the book of Revelation or chapters 4 through 22 are yet future. And again, I want to emphasize that John is told to write these things that will take place I think that the Lord is very clearly indicating that those chapters are not merely a historic or symbolic or allegorical interpretation. These things must take place. And then verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw are saw are the seven churches. So the seven churches, which now as we enter into chapters 2 and 3, are going to be addressed by Jesus. And these are very, listen, these are very rich chapters. These are chapters when I first became a Christian that they really spoke to my heart. And Jesus is going to turn to each church and he's going to commend them on what they were doing well. He's going to bring correction to them where they weren't doing well. And then he brings an eternal promise, uh, exhortation to them as he speaks to them. And you see, we can apply it to where we as Calvary Chapel, where do we fit into one of these seven churches? Are we like the church of Ephesus? Are we like the church of Philadelphia? Or are we like the church of Laodicea? I hope we're not. But these are seven kinds of churches, and we can say, okay, us, Calvary Chapel, if the Lord wrote us a letter, what would he say? But more personally, what kind of Christian? They speaks to us as a Christian, the things that, that pleases the Lord, the things that perhaps we need to be corrected in. And I remember that as we're going to look at the church of Ephesus, when I read this, I thought, man, that's me. So you don't want to miss these next couple chapters as we go through these these churches, because a lot of people, they want to get to the good stuff, you know, the future stuff. You know, we can get our charts out and everything. That's, that's all fine, but very rich. As he's going to speak to the churches, he's going to speak to us and has a lot to say to you and to me. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these, th this chapter that we've taken our time going through. And, Lord, we are so grateful that Jesus stands in the midst of the church and his people we always see Jesus there in the midst of his people. Even from the Old Testament time, as the tabernacle was there in the middle of the camp, there the, 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 the pillar of cloud and fire. And, and Lord, you're here in our midst, in this place. And I thank you for that. And I thank you that we can be encouraged. And Lord, that you, you desire to speak to us. You desire to speak to us. Every time we meet, every time we open up the word. And Lord, I do pray for those who perhaps they feel like that you've been silent. Oh Lord, you want to touch our hearts. You have things to say to us. May we be in tune with you and studying the word and having devotions. And Lord, in those dry times and rocky times where we feel isolated from the world because people come against us because we're Christians for the word of of. God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ that you have a message for us of compassion and promises as we are in your hand and I thank you for that that we're reminded of that and Father I pray I pray if there is anyone that you're here 
and you've never committed to Jesus Christ, surrendered your life to him for forgiveness, that he is your salvation. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. You come through Jesus Christ who went to the cross to die for your sins. Because the greatest problem that any man has is we've all sinned. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came to take care of the sin problem. He went to the cross to die for you because he loves you. And he's calling you tonight if you've never made a commitment. And there might be somebody here or you're listening on live stream or later on the radio that you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. He's the eternal one. And he is going to come back to establish his kingdom. And he desires for you to come to the family of God, to be forgiven, to have peace with the Father, access to him, and have the hope of eternal life. You come and you confess that you're a sinner in need of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Will you do that? Today is the day of salvation. You can pray right where you are. Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on Calvary's cross. You're speaking to my heart. And now I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for forgiving me. And I want to know you and walk with you. I want to walk in this newness of life.